you know, I, I, I don't want to sit here because we all have like stories to tell just even about how life can be hard. And uh, um, just more than anything, I just want you guys to know I'm, I'm just, I'm no different than you. And you guys just got to let, just let me be that, okay? Um, just let me be just a real little person um, with a bunch of little people that God is doing, I think, a pretty cool thing. Maybe even a big thing uh, here in Grand Rapids. So anyway, I um, wasn't planning on saying that. Didn't say that in the first service either. <laughs> so next week, this is kind of important. You know, we're, we're, we love being in the city um, because we get opportunities to be really good neighbors. Like next weekend when they're going to have the race down here in Grand Rapids, anybody running the, I think it's 5K, maybe 10K race. It comes right past our church. A couple of you guys are running it. Yes. Um, so we cannot have service at nine o'clock. However, we are going to have a service at 11 o'clock and we're going to have a service at four o'clock. The service at 11 o'clock will have childcare. Uh, those of you who don't need, need childcare, uh, don't worry about the Detroit Lions or anything like that. Come to the four o'clock service. <laughs> They're barely gonna get four wins this year, I know it. <laughs> and, and next week, we're, um, I, I just feel led to just make next week kind of like a vision Sunday for our church. Uh, we sometimes do that at the beginning of the year to just like what God is saying to us, speaking to us, and then showing where, who we are and where we need to go. Uh, but we're especially feeling it stronger this year, just in light of, I think, a couple weeks ago, even Steve Ampoulin asked how many people have started coming to Crossroads even in the last two years, and the number of hands are, are huge. And so we actually feel during this season in some ways that we are replanting our church, that we are turning over a new chapter. And that doesn't mean that the old chapter uh, isn't even incredibly meaningful to us. Um, if, if you've been a part of the first chapter of Crossroads, I mean, God took, took ashes and turned them into beauty. Really, that's the only way I can put it. And um, this new chapter that we're going to start, we're standing on the backs of a lot of people who are part of that first chapter. But we are so excited about stepping into this new season. We're so excited, too, about all the new people that God has brought to this church. And uh, so next week uh, will be a time for us to just really talk about, I think, one of the, the, the unique call that God has placed on this church and what we need to be in the world for the world, for the glory of God. So that'll be next week, 11 o'clock and 4 o'clock. Now we're going to start a series on the book of Ruth. And some of you are like, Ruth? There's a book in the Bible called Ruth? Uh, yeah, it's a short little story. It's in the Old Testament. I'm really excited to get back into story, and I'm excited to get back into the Old Testament. But I still feel like I need to give further explanation as to why Ruth, and it's really simple for me. One of the things that I've noticed, especially in the last year, is that Christians are abandoning the story, God's story, our story. And we're abandoning it uh, for all these lesser stories, these, these lesser narratives. And, and as a result, we're losing a sense of, 
of who we are as God's people and, and why we're here. And I just feel like it's high time for us to immerse ourselves in the story of God. And Ruth is not only one of the most beautiful stories in the Bible, uh, but as we say it around here a lot, like it takes all the little stories of the Bible to tell the one big story. And Ruth does that in such a beautiful way. But I would also make the argument that no little story in the Bible better encapsulates the whole one big story of God than the book of Ruth. So let's uh, turn there right now. Ruth chapter one, I believe it's found on page 210 in your blue Bibles. I will not make commentary on anything right now like I did in the first service. Um, I was a little rusty. (laughs) Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Ruth chapter one. In the days when the judges ruled, there was famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, the wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. We know Bethlehem, right? Um, So here we have another story taking place in Bethlehem. But this family went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. He died, and she was left with her two sons. Her two sons married Moabite women, one named Orpah, the other named Ruth, and they had lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kilion, also died. So Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. And with her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living. She set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi, at some point in this journey, said to her two daughters-in-law, go back. Each of you, go back to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as I have shown you kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant to each of you that you would find rest in your home with another husband. So then they kissed them. So then Naomi kissed them goodbye and they wept aloud and said to her, we will go back with you, Naomi, to your people. But Naomi said, no, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have many more sons who would then become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. And even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband and two sons, uh, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord has turned against me. And at this, they wept aloud again. And then Orpah, one of the daughters-in-law, kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth, in fact, this is what Ruth's name means. It means clung. Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and to her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, some of the most beautiful words in the Bible, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. 
Your people will be my people and your God, my God, where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. And may the Lord even deal ever so severely, uh, even if death separates you and me. And when Naomi realized that Ruth was so determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? But Naomi said to them, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away from Bethlehem full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought, not misfortune, literally the word in Hebrew there is evil, brought evil, calamity upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. This is God's word. You can be seated. So first of all, as we learn from the first verse, that this takes place during the time of the judges. And if you don't know the time of the judges, um, this is one of the darkest uh, periods in the biblical narrative. And judges is not uh, just dark morally and spiritually, but it also, it's just brutally depressing to, to read the book because if you think about it, this is the part of the story that's supposed to get really exciting. God's people have now entered the promised land and they've entered their, their call, God's call that he's placed on this nation to be a city on a hill, to be a light to the nations. And their fir- first crack at this is a train wreck. I mean, in Judges, you just read story after story of killing and murder and rape and prostitution and idolatry, uh, sexual immorality, all these things. In fact, if you just turn over to the last verse of Judges, because Judges is right before Ruth, and you look at the last verse, it says, in those days, Israel had no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And that clause where everyone did what was right in their own eyes is said repeatedly throughout the book to sum up uh, why God's people have become what they have become. In fact, one of the last stories in the book of Judges literally mimics the story of Lot and Sodom. And if you remember that story of Lot when he's in Sodom, when he's entertaining these guests and the men from Sodom surround his house and demand to have sex with those guests. And that same story is, is now happening, but instead of it happening in, in Sodom, in Judges 19, it is now happening in Israel amongst God's people. And the only difference in, in the Judges 19 story is this time uh, it's a man and his wife and their guests in another person's house right outside of Jerusalem. And the men of this village, the text says, from young to old, demanded to have sex with the husband. And the only way in which really the story in Judges differs from the one uh, in regards to Lot is that Lot offered his daughter to these men. Just think about that. 
But this husband doesn't have a daughter, so he offers to these men his, his wife. And the next day, wakes up and finds her on his porch, raped to death. That is how far Israel has fallen, how depraved they have become in just two to three generations. Does that sound familiar? See, and it's out of this dark period of depravity that we have this beautiful story of of Ruth. And from the first four verses of, the, of this story, it looks like it's going to be a story about a father and his two sons, but this all changes in a real hurry. And the thing that changes this story is famine. Now, famine was serious in that day, usually caused by drought. So if you know the geography, this man, his wife, his two, uh, two sons, they, they live in Bethlehem. And if you know where Bethlehem is situated, it's, it's right on the edge where the land becomes desert. So Bethlehem can receive up to uh, eight to 20 inches of rain a year, which is pretty good. But if you go literally to the east, because here's a picture uh, from Bethlehem looking east, uh, between Bethlehem and that sea out there, which is the Dead Sea, is all desert. So you can literally go two miles from Bethlehem, and they, now you're getting two inches of rain a year. And then you see the Dead Sea out there, and then rising up above the Dead Sea is Jordan today, but in our story, it's Moab. And I think this is hugely significant. Because... That means, and this applies to what we're going to look at today with Elimelech, this dad living in Bethlehem, he can look at Moab and see we're having famine here, but they're not having famine there. And later in the story, Ruth, who's going to come and live in Bethlehem every day, because I've stood in Bethlehem when I lead tours, and it just it's stunning to just like, Look to the east and see Moab. Every day, Ruth can see her homeland. Now, famine in ancient times was deadly. Don't think that this is now, oh, I lost my 401k, or I have to sell the summer cottage, or we need to downsize. Uh, Famine posed the threat that, are we going to have enough food? Are people going to starve? Now, this past year, famine hit. It hit us. And here's the question that that you have to ask is, is how, how do you respond when famine hits your life? How do we respond in times of loss? Because you find out in a real hurry what's inside a person, what's inside a man, what's inside a woman, what's inside a marriage, what's, what's inside a family, what's inside a church. And here in our story, you have this man, his name literally means my God is king. And he just gets up and leaves. He leaves Bethlehem. Even the name Bethlehem 
Think about this next time at Christmas. Beit house, lechem, bread. Beit lechem means house of bread, house of food. <laughs> of course, the bread of the life is going to come from, from a bakery. From ba- some of you caught that, but some of you are still pondering or waking up. I don't know. But think about Elimelech leaving house of food, house of bread. But he's not just leaving Bethlehem. He's leaving his community. He's leaving his people. He's leaving his tribe. He's leaving the land of promise. He's leaving the place where he is in covenant relationship with other people who are in covenant relationship with God, where God has placed call on them to be a light to the nations, to be a city set on on a hill. He leaves it. For what? For Moab. But what do we know about Moab? Well, Moab, they're, they're descendants of Lot, first of all. In fact, when Lot's daughters have no prospects for marriage, this tells you how important having sons, which I'll talk about in a second, is in this culture. They get their dad intoxicated and then are impregnated through incestuous relationships with her father, Lot. The oldest daughter has a son that she presents to Lot. His name is Moab, becomes the father of the Moabites. The other daughter presents a son to her dad, is called Amnon, and father of the Ammonites. Even before this, if you know the Lot story, Lot really, at the end of the day, is known for bailing on Abraham, Lot is Abraham's nephew, and here he is with Abraham, who is the one person in the world whom God is partnering with. I mean, literally, the text says about Abraham, a friend of God, because God is partnering with Abraham to redeem the world, and Lot abandons Abraham for what? Sodom the comforts of Sodom. In fact, the text says this about Lot. When when Lot first laid eyes on Sodom, this is what he said. He said, surely this is the garden of of the Lord. This is the garden of Eden. And Sodom in that moment, moment seduced Lot and Lot then turns from Abraham and sells his soul to Sodom. Elimelech here is doing the exact same thing. He sees Moab. He sees those green pastures off in the distance. His heart is seduced and he leaves God. He leaves the people of God through whom God is partnering with to repair the whole world. He sells his soul. And why does Elimelech do that? Because Moab promised food. Moab promised prosperity, comfort, safety, a famineless life. That's interesting. <laughs> First week back and I forgot my text sheet, but that's okay. Deuteronomy 11, 10 to 15, you can even read it today. God t- tells his people, you are leaving the land of Egypt. Land that you just had to irrigate because the water was at your feet. 
he said, God says to them, but the land I'm going to, he says, you're not going to have that. You're not going to just have these, this big Nile River and, and, and water that's just everywhere. The land I'm, you're taking possession of is a land that drinks rain from heaven. It is a land the Lord your God cares for. Listen to this. This is what God says. He says the, God says the eyes of the Lord your God are continually on it from the beginning of the day to the end. This is what Elimelech is leaving. And I want us to see the tragedy of this because instead of choosing to do life with his own people who are actually at this time in partnership with God to heal the world, which also includes showing justice and mercy to those who are famished around him, instead Elimelech moves from need and the needy because he is afraid. He is afraid. He lives by fear and not by faith. And the driving force of his life is comfort and safety. And I couldn't help but wonder, don't you think his community needed him? A man whose name means my God is king? And then we see, as we keep reading, how far um, he just immerses himself in Moab. It says that their sons marry Moabite women. And you say, so what? Well, there's also a story here. Uh, God literally forbids Israelites to have any association with the Moabites. First, because when God's people were passing from the desert into the promised land, the Moabites they had to pass through the uh, Moab and the Moabites said, no, you can't, you can't pass through. And God says, because these people didn't open their arms to you and let you through and show you hospitality. But also when you read Numbers 25, verse one, which I had on my sheet, says this. While Israel is staying in Shittim, <laughs> the Shittim is about to hit the fan. Uh, <clears throat> sorry, first time back, first day back in a while. And it is though, it's, it's gonna hit. Cause while Israel was staying in Shittim, this is right before they're about to go into the promised land, the men began to indulge in sex, sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifice to their gods. The people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before these gods. So Israel yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor. See, that's why even a Moabite woman was a term in this day for a sexual promiscuous woman because of this story, which caused Israel to be yoked to the Baal of Peor, and I, I, you say, what Baal is that? I can't even describe it because it'd be too pornographic. And this is why God says what he says then in Deuteronomy chapter 23. He says, no Ammonite or Moabite or any of the descendants of their descendants, even down to the 10th generation, may enter the assembly of the Lord.
But Elimelech goes there. And look at what happens to him. By the way, his sons, Malon and Kilion, their name, the names themselves foreshadow what's coming because Malon means COVID. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> it means sickly, though. It means sickly. And Kilion means to waste away. Now listen, you're like, who names their kids sickly and wasting away? Well, here's how they did names in that day. Because they understood, and I think we know this too, in the human heart, there's an evil inclination and a righteous inclination. And names to them were a person's identity, but and a person's identity would become their destiny. So Kilion has the opportunity as he makes choices and lives out his life to either be sickly or to be someone who brings forgiveness. Because that's the other meaning of his name. Malon has the opportunity to waste away or to become whole because that's the other possible, possible meaning of his name. But Elimelech literally becomes his, his two sons' names. He gets sick and he wastes away. Uh, the very thing that he sought to avoid, he actually now gets. And sadly, like Lot, he becomes sick with the disease of worldliness and his life literally wastes away. And I think we can conclude here about Elimelech. What a waste of a life. A waste. And I think there's a lot to think about here. I don't have to explain how our world has become a famine. A famine morally, a famine spiritually, a famine relationally, communally, a famine physically for some with health, a famine materially for others. Don't think that Moab doesn't exist. Moab is still calling us. It's still seducing us. It goes by different names in the Bible. It goes by the name Sodom. It goes by the name Babylon. Jesus simply labels it the world. Whatever you want to label it, Moab today is still a force. It's still trying to seduce us into thinking that if I could only live there, if I could only get away from this, if I could only be safe from that, if I could only have that, get that, obtain that, then my life will be all set. See, this is the lure of Moab. It seduces our hearts to bail, to bail on God, to bail on God's people, to bail on our call, because God is now partnering with us to repair the world. Do you dare ask yourself right now, what is Moab in my life? What is it right now that you're turning to? What is it that you're running to? What is it that you're seeking that you think that if I just get this, it'll all be okay? Have you bailed on God? Have you bailed on God's people? Have you bailed on God's call in your life? And if so, why? Is it because like Elimelech, we're afraid? 
We as Christians don't have the luxury to live by fear or to live in a way that promotes fear. We are called to live by faith and our lives are to inspire faith in the people around us. Or maybe you find yourself bailing because it's just safer, it's easier, it's more convenient. I'll tell you, from the seat I sit, one thing the last year or so has taught me is that there are a lot of people at crossroads who are in deep, deep need right now, who are hurting, who need Elimelech's and Naomi's. In fact, since, since this has been on my mind and heart for a while, and it's something that I've thought about even in this, during my sabbatical, and I just want to, I know it's talking about something that happened a while ago, but I just still want to say this, that I, I just want to personally apologize how we as a church, we're in this last season, how we've just blown it. I mean, we, we shut things down. We, we, we closed the doors of this church when, when, when there were people in this church who needed their church ever so badly. And so as an elder and as a staff person, I think I can speak for them and just say, you know, I think there are times in which we failed you and we're really sorry about that. And we will never do that again. We're better than that. And we're gonna be better next time if there is one. But can I ask right now, what are you aiming for? What's your life going for? What's the driving force of your life? What is it that gets you out of bed in the morning? Are you aiming for Moab? Because Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of heaven. And whether you know this or not right now, even if you were at a football game yesterday or last night, there's nothing more exciting right now in our world than the kingdom of heaven. And what is the kingdom? Well, the kingdom of heaven is Jesus literally saying the words, behold, I will make all things new. It's Paul talking about new creation, or it's the Jewish phrase that the Jews like to used in referring to the kingdom of heaven, tikkun olam. Tikkun means to repair or to heal. Olam means the whole, the whole world being healed. Or as Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven, it's the lame walking, it's the blind seeing, it's the deaf hearing, it's the poor being restored. It's God in partnership with his people through his king, repairing, redeeming, resurrecting, restoring, reconciling all things. We get to be a part of that. Ah, they were louder, louder at the big house last night, but I know your heart, heart right now is shouting inside. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I love, I love this is what C.S. Lewis said. C.S. Lewis said, aim at heaven and you get earth thrown in. How true that is. But he says, aim at earth, you get neither. And I think that's what the life of Elimelech teaches, that a life aimed at earth is such a waste, which is why 
famine. I know it hurts. I know it's hard. But it's such a good thing. Because it strips us, it exposes us, and it's the only thing at the end of the day that really reveals to us the true condition of our heart. I can hide a lot of things from a lot of people, but famine doesn't let me hide anything from myself. And then you're forced to ask, how do we respond to famine? And this is where we need to be careful because we've been taught to think like a limelight, to be practical and to go where we can be comfortable and feel secure and make a life and be safe. But really, is that all that life amounts to? To make a life for ourselves only to lose it in the end? I mean, Elimelech wasted his life going this path. Are you wasting yours? And Jesus said, for those who seek to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake and for the kingdom will save it. A lot to think about. Let's get back to the story. Naomi now is left with her two sons. And you just need to know how things were in that world. Um, In that culture, a son was a family's future, a son. And a son was a mother's glory. So to a woman in that day, sons are everything. That's why Lot's daughters are doing what they're doing, trying to have a son. Uh, A son is a woman's worth, her capital, her security, her glory. And now the text says 10 years passed, Naomi living with her sons, and then her two sons live true to their names, and they too die. So in four short, short verses, one to four, Naomi's life goes from being completely full to being completely empty. She loses everything. And I think some of us in this room know that life can do that in a moment. Boom! It can be all full, and then boom, empty. And so here is Naomi. She's living in this male-dominant culture. She has lost all the men in her life, meaning she's lost all of her protection. She's lost all of her status. She's lost all her means to an income. She has no hope for a future. Uh, Her family name now is blotted out. And she's at the mercy of a culture that really has very little interest in her. In fact, in reflecting on Naomi this week, I couldn't help but think about this other character in the Bible who, who suffered immensely, and that's Job. And I actually think she outjobed Job. Because think about Job. Job lost a lot, but Job still has a wife. He still has a community around him. Job is not an immigrant, and Job is not a woman in a male-dominant culture. Naomi's life is completely bankrupt of everything that gave a person meaning, significance, worth, and dignity. Maybe some of you are there today. And here's what I want to tell you. The book of Ruth, I can sum the whole book up in one word. It's about redemption. This book is going to teach us that there is a redeemer 
And in the end, we're gonna see Naomi's life completely redeemed. And the God that we're reading about in the story is the same God today. You have to know that he can redeem your life too. But you also need to know that redemption is a process. And in God's economy, redemption only happens through suffering and obedience. Or better yet, obedience in suffering leads to redemption. Imagine Naomi's return home. She has to, by the way, walk the Jericho Road. I mean, this is a dangerous walk for an older widow. She makes her way. She has to actually pass by Jerusalem because Bethlehem is just four or five miles south of that. Just a little village. And imagine when she finally gets to, to that little village and all the familiar places, the familiar streets, the familiar farms, the familiar faces, and think about all the memories that this would have brought back, memories of her husband, great memories of her sons, and then all of a sudden the words, hey everybody, Naomi's back. Naomi, how are you? It's good to see you. And some of us want Naomi, in spite of famine, displacement, widowhood, childlessness, and marginalization, to be this happy, cheery person. Hey, everybody, I'm, I'm back. But the Bible doesn't give us that. Because the Bible doesn't do fake. I love the brutal honesty of the biblical story because the, the biblical story never sugarcoats life. It, it describes life as it is, the way that we experience it, and it gives us real people. It gives us Job and David, Elijah. It gives us Jesus, people who know how to hurt and, and hurt out loud publicly. It gives us the Psalms. It gives us Habakkuk. It gives us lamentations, these places where people express their pain, their sorrow, their loneliness, everything that they're going through, their brokenness. It gives us people often too, times too who dress themselves in sackcloth and ashes to publicly say, literally with ashes all over face and head, sackcloth, walking around in rags to tell the world I'm in pain. How can we be a community? How can we be the church if we can't hurt out loud? Can we say to each other when our life hurts? Can we say, my life hurts? I mean, look at Naomi in verse 20. She just says it. She's like, don't call, don't call me Naomi anymore. My new name is Mara. Because Naomi means sweet, it means pleasant, it means happy. Mara means bitter. And what she's saying to everyone, do you see my life? Do you see my loss? My life isn't sweet anymore. It's not happy. Call me Mara because my life is bitter. I think one of the reasons why many of us in this room right now are, are uncomfortable with this 
This form of honesty is because we have a poor theology of suffering. We automatically think that when we suffer that there's something either wrong with me or there's something wrong with God. So therefore we cover it up and we try to put a happy face on it because we automatically think that we can't show anyone our spiritual flaws. How have we so missed some of the basic things that the Bible says about suffering? Like the first one, suffering is a gift. And gifts are given by someone. Who's it a gift from? God. And I know some of you are thinking, like, why do you think it's a gift? And I'm, again, I'm not trying to even sugarcoat suffering because suffering hurts. It, it, sometimes you can't even put words to how much it hurts. But what else teaches us about our true heart condition? What else teaches us more about God and his grace and his goodness I mean, nothing draws my heart into the heart of God and God's heart into my life than suffering. This is why James says, he says, count it all joy when you, when you suffer. This is why Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings. In fact, Paul even pushes it further as we heard in our call to worship today. Paul says, Am I, you want me to boast? Okay, I'll boast. I'll boast about one thing. This is the thing that I will boast about is that I suffer because this is Paul speaking. I have learned that God's power in my life is made perfect through suffering. And if you want to see the high premium and value that God places on suffering, he loves it so much that he became like us so he could suffer like no one. And what did his suffering achieve? It achieved resurrection, restoration, reconciliation. And you don't think your suffering on a smaller scale doesn't achieve those same things? Which means when I suffer, it should never to say to the world that I have flaws. Suffering should say to you, it should speak of my merit. That the God of the universe has counted me worthy, that God thinks so highly of me that he would count me worthy to suffer. So Christian, we need to wear our, our, our suffering almost like a badge of honor because it's a gift. Don't be embarrassed by it, but wear it, even with sackcloth and ashes if you need to. And let it do what God wants it to do in your life. Because those things will be good things. And this is why Naomi can just tell everybody, my name is bitter for the Almighty has afflicted me. If you tuned out, please tune in. Did you just hear what she said? My name is bitter because the Almighty has afflicted me. Who afflicted her? See, it takes a proper theology of suffering 
to actually deal with suffering like Naomi to be someone who can just hurt out loud. So right now, if you're crying out to God and we all cry these cries out in some form of why God? Why can't I find a job? Why am I trapped in this awful marriage? Why does my spouse have to get cancer? Why can't I have children? Why do I have no friends? Why is nothing working out in my life? Please don't take God off the throne when you ask these questions. There's not a single trial or hurt or season of loss that does not come from the hand of God. And God is the one who redeemed. But his redemption in his economy is through suffering. Which means that when I suffer or I see other people suffering, I can't feel this need that I oftentimes feel inside to kind of let God off the hook by thinking or saying, you know, God would never do that or God would never allow that. That's like cutting my nose off to spite my face. Because the very thing that you and I need in the midst of our suffering and our trials is a hope, the hope that there is a God who is sovereign, who sits on the throne, who knows the beginning from the end and is in complete charge and is allowing these things in our life the way a father allows their son or daughter to have to be hurt, knowing in the end. It's going to be good. Now, the thing that Naomi does in her loss, and I want us to see this, verse 22 says she returns. In Hebrew here, this is a very important word. It's the word shuvah. Shuvah is the Hebrew word for repentance. Repentance or shuvah means to turn or to return. So Naomi turns from what? She's turning from Moab, life apart from God. She's, she's turning from this life where she's living it outside of God's wings. And what is she turning towards? She's turning back to Bethlehem, to life in God, with God, under God's wings. In fact, 12 times in this chapter alone, I don't have time to show it to you, uh, but this word shuvah is used. And it's a discipleship word because discipleship is all about a walk. It's about finding God's path and walking it. And you know how, as a disciple, it's so easy to get off God's path and to get way out here and so far away where you're up to your eyes in, in, in Moab or the world. And that's why shuvah is such a beautiful word. Shuvah means that we can turn from all of that. And we can return, we can come home to God. And we have the Father on the porch waiting for us. And I love this because when Naomi and Ruth actually arrive in Bethlehem, it's the beginning of the harvest time. In fact, it's the first day, the text says, last verse. It's the first day of the barley harvest. This gives me goosebumps. Because the first day of the barley har harvest is the Sunday following Passover. 
And that Sunday is also, that first day of the barley harvest is called, it's, it, it's a holiday called First Fruits. Hundreds upon hundreds of years later, the most significant thing that will ever happen in the history of the world happens on First Fruits. It's this Sunday that Jesus, after Passover, is resurrected. So they call it first fruits. We call this day Easter. And this is foreshadowing what's going to happen in Naomi's life. Because when you repent, when you turn, and you turn back to God, you better get ready for a resurrection. Listen to what Hosea 6 says. Come, let us return to the Lord. That's that word shuvah. Let us repent, for he has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. In two days, he will revive us. And on the third day, he will restore us that we may live in his presence. If you're suffering, the best thing you can do is repent. Turn from and turn to God everything you have. Because at the end of the story, this is exactly what Naomi does. We're going to see how her life is going to be redeemed, how she's going to be given her whole life back, a new life, a life redeemed from the pit. And it's going to be redeemed as we're going to come to see through a man. His name is Boaz. He's called a kinsman redeemer. We're going to learn what that term means. But ultimately, this redemption comes from God. But in chapter one, the redemption has become has began in Naomi's life and it's through a woman and her name is Ruth because in verse 8 when Naomi is just begging her daughter-in-laws look girls go home you're crazy to come with me go home where you have fathers and you have mothers and you have security and you have community protection all those things and you have the strong possibility if you go back to getting your life back which is why Orpah uh, wisely listens and goes home but Ruth we are told clings to Naomi it's literally what Ruth Ruth's name means it means to cling and and then some of the most powerful words in, in the whole biblical story come out of, out of her mouth where she says, where you stay, I will stay. And your people will be my people. And your God will be my God. And then her next verse, she says, may even the Lord deal ever so severely with me. It doesn't matter. I'm going with you. But what Ruth knows at this moment I want us to see this, is that for her to leave her home doesn't mean a better life. She says it in verse 17, even if the Lord deals ever so severely with me, I don't care. She isn't expecting a better life by going with Naomi, but she still says, I'm still going with you. In fact, in her mind, she's probably expecting a worse life. And here she's unlike most Christians because so many many of us think that, oh, if I just become a Christian, my life will get so much better. But Ruth doesn't expect a better life. 
So then you have to ask yourself, why does she go with Naomi? Well, listen to her words. Your God will be my God and may the Lord deal ever so severely with me. She goes from talking about your God to the personal name for God, which is translated Lord. This is the covenant name of God, Yahweh. So in effect, what she is saying to Naomi, Naomi, I must go with you because your God is my Lord. And I want us to see what's at stake here. Because Ruth can stay where she is, where it's comfortable, where she has family, friends, safety, security, connections, strong possibilities of getting her life back. Or she can give it all up. But here's the deal. If she stays where it's comfortable, where she can be secure, maintain her status, she loses God and her relationship with the Lord and her life will just waste away. But it's not just her life that's at stake. If she goes home to save her own life, Naomi's life will perish. But if Ruth gives up her life, Naomi's life has a chance of being redeemed. And so here's Ruth. Her life is at a crossroads. And Ruth chooses to give up her life so that Naomi's life can be redeemed. She gives up her father. She gives up her family. She gives up her homeland. She gives up everything. And if you know the biblical story well enough, boy, does this sound familiar? This is exactly what Abraham gave up. He gave it all up, his father, his homeland, all of it. And he left He left it. And if you want to know what changes Naomi, what redeems her life, it's Ruth. Giving it all up so that Naomi can get her life back. And this, my friends, is how redemption happens. Whether it's Naomi, whether it's your neighbor across the street, whether it's your marriage, for redemption to happen, someone needs to give up their life. And this is why our lives are, are constantly lived at this crossroads. This crossroads, will I choose Moab or will I choose the land of promise? Will I choose to make a life or will I choose to give up my life? Will I choose to live uh, your life for me or will I choose to live my life for you? Will I choose myself or will I choose him? Who are you in this story? Elimelech? Seeking comfort, safety, riches, prosperity? Or are you Ruth? Seeking God, seeking to be in God's story, laying down your life so that others can be raised up, becoming poor to make other people rich, giving up your life so other people can be redeemed. Jeremiah 6 verse 16 says, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look and ask for the ancient path. Ask where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. Let's pray.
God, the one prayer from my heart is that there would be massive amounts of repentance. I know what my Moab is, God. I know all the people, places, and things that I have turned to. God, I pray that there would be massive amounts of repentance. God, would you raise up a church of people who want to belong to you with everything they have, who want to be in your story, who want to, who want to be part of this call of the kingdom of heaven. God, your heart to repair the world. God, do what you need to do in our lives and our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.